Let us pray to receive God's word. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, King of endless glory. Amen. A New Testament reading taken from John's first epistle, chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. The word of our God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us with patience. This is the word of the Lord. We don't want to hear about this again. I was perhaps fourth grade, fifth grade, and I was sitting there. I had just explained what had happened, what the cousin had done. I was young. We were playing hide-and-seek, and I always got paired off with one cousin. My brother always got paired off with the other cousins. It was sort of like the alpha cousins versus me and the other one. And uh, this older teenage cousin had an idea of a cool place to play hide-and-seek, a place they would never find us. It was inside a bale of hay behind a shed. And when he got me in there, he started pulling out magazines the type of magazines that a child should never be exposed to. And I remember him putting his arm around me, pulling me in, pointing to different things, asking me what I thought about it. And it was at that moment that the wasp nest we had just disturbed got active, and I was stung, and I went crying back to the house. And later on, I explained what had happened. And what I was told is, you should not have been with him alone. And we don't ever want to hear about this again. Blame the victim and silence the victim. We're going to look at a passage today that I think has profound implications in a culture of silence that hushes victims up in a world in which things happen that should not happen and they keep happening and people keep being told to get back in line, to not rock the boat, to not disturb anything, to not cause a ruckus. It's a passage in the book of Deuteronomy about which I have been thinking very long and hard and theologically for over 20 years. It's a passage in the Mosaic case law which guided the Jewish nation, the people of God, over you know, 3,000 years ago. It's a passage that is in the 21st chapter of Deuteronomy. I have never really heard it preached about before, but I think it's profound once we think theologically about, about its implications. This is Deuteronomy 21, beginning in verse 1. If a man is found slain lying in a field in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it's not known who killed him, your elders and judges shall go out and measure the distance from the body to the neighboring towns, and then the elders of the town nearest to the body shall take a heifer, that's a cow, 
that has never been worked and has never worn a yoke and lead her down to a valley that has not been plowed or planted and where there is a flowing stream. There in the valley they are to break the heifer's neck. The priests, the sons of Levi, shall step forward for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister and to pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord and to decide all cases of dispute and assault. And then all of the elders of the town nearest the body shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley and they shall declare, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done. Accept this atonement for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent man. And the bloodshed will be atoned for. And so you will purge from yourselves the guilt of the shedding of innocent blood, since you have done what is right in the eyes of the Lord. We're going to ask some questions about this passage this morning. If you're a theologically oriented kind of person, we're going to first analyze it theologically, and then we're going to analyze it uh, contextually and missionally, and then finally we're going to analyze it redemptive historically. But if you want to know what that is called when it's at home, we're going to first ask, what on earth are we supposed to do with a passage like this? And then we're going to ask what that actually looks like today, and then we're going to ask how it's possible. First, what on earth? earth are we supposed to do with a passage like this? Well, understand theologically within the the law of Moses, particularly within Exodus, Deuteronomy, uh, 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 parts of Numbers, there is, on the one hand, there is the kind of pure moral law expressed in the Ten Commandments. You know, honor your father and mother, have no other gods before me, obey my Sabbath, remember my Sabbath, uh, do not covet, do not bear false witness, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, honor God's name. where it's just pure moral principle, cuts across space and time in every culture. It's the kind of moral principle that you would see summarized in the New Testament in the Fruits of the Spirit or in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but you see not only the Ten Commandments, but you also see all the case law, all those individual laws for the state of Israel in the ancient world that, that talk about what to do in this situation and what to do in that situation. And, 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 and what we're looking at here is case law and with case law, since uh, at least since Gratian of Bologna in the 1100s, Christian theologians have, have distinguished three different aspects of the Mosaic case law. Those different aspects that are present in any set of commands or any set of instruction. On the one hand, there's that pure moral principle that cuts across space and time that would be true in any culture where God is at work. And, and yet, in addition to that moral principle, there are also civil aspects of the law because it was the law for the state of Israel. Church and state were, were united in un, under the old covenant, and so you've got specific civil aspects about what what, what courts are supposed to do and, and what punishments are going to be there for certain crimes and how to structure things and collect taxes and all of that. And then, in addition to this moral aspect and this civil aspect, there is a ceremonial aspect to Old Testament law. Those ceremonial aspects that are always pointing to Jesus, where you've got a sacrifice that has to be made for a certain sin in order to be absolved for it, in which you've got food laws to separate the people of God out from others and to tell you that you can't wear cotton polyester blend 
pigeons and you can't eat shellfish and, and all of and, and, and you have to kill this animal, two doves for this sin in order to have atonement. And, and all of that is ultimately pointing to Christ. And so you've got these three different strands which from our covenantal perspective on this side of the resurrection of Christ means that we've got to unravel all three because the civil aspect of the Mosaic legislation is in the New Testament not applied to civil government. It is consistently spiritualized and applied to the church. For example, in ancient Israel, uh, if certain crimes were done against God, there was the punishment of expulsion. And so the, the Jews were told to expel the wicked man from among you, literally drive him out to Egypt, um, take away his citizenship. And in the New Testament, that is then spiritualized in a church discipline context for how you treat those who, who willfully disregard Christ uh, within the church. It's spiritualized in the ceremonial aspect fulfilled in Christ, but the moral aspect is universal. It's a universal moral norm. It's what would be seen in, in natural law should you believe in such a thing. So how do we deal with that here? If we take that threefold distinction between moral, ceremonial, and civil aspects, and we apply it to this passage, what do we see? Well, we see certainly the civil aspect if a, a dead body is found, a victim, and nobody knows who caused the victim to die. Then they're supposed to actually measure out the distance. They're pacing it out to find out what the nearest town is, because the nearest town is the one that will then have the responsibility for dealing with it. That's civil aspect, civil legislation. It's, it's governmental stuff that, that, that no longer applies to us, and, and at least not, not literally. And, and then there's this ceremonial aspect about this heifer that has to be taken to a perfect, pristine, untouched valley and, 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 and killed. Its neck has to be broken. Uh, that's pointing to Christ. But then we've got the moral aspect. What's the moral aspect here? You've got several different aspects. On the one hand... There's the notion that human life is inviolate, that you ought not to kill innocent human beings. Thou shalt not commit murder. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's a universal moral principle consistently held up throughout the Bible. Um, but you've also got something else going on here. You've got in this a biblical notion of solidarity that is radically different from American individualism. Uh, it's not just the person who committed the murder that's responsible for the murder. In this passage, everybody has to deal with the blood guilt of an unsolved murder. Individually, we may not be guilty for this crime, but together as ones in solidarity with the victim and in solidarity with the victimizer, we all have some corporate responsibility. They had to be able to say, we did not do this and we did not see it happen. That notion of solidarity, that we're all somewhat responsible for what happens to other people, you see it in the Bible in the first chapters when Cain killed Abel. Hey, am I my brother's keeper, he asks, and the implied answer is, yes, actually, you are responsible for what happens to your neighbor. It's why the prophets in, in the Old Testament uh, spoke so much about justice for certain people groups, protected people groups, the poor, the widow, the stranger, the alien. It's why when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, one of the moral implications is that if you see somebody bleeding in a ditch, even if you're a priest or a pastor on your way to preach Sunday morning, even if you're a Levite, you are responsible for that victim to stop and give him whatever help, but whatever personal cost, because we're all in solidarity. It's not just an individualistic thing. It's why the prophet Nehemiah, when he sees in the Old Testament how devastated the people of God are, he goes and he asks forgiveness for them. 
because he's in solidarity with them. We're all a corporate whole. In Matthew 25, at the Last Judgment, Jesus says that the king will say, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. It's so countercultural within North American individualism because, uh, you know, the illustration that's often used for uh, our, our, our highly radically individualistic uh, ethic is the story of, of the famous violinist. About once every year or two, I share the story of the famous violinist, and it goes like this. I had first read it in Lawrence Tribe, I believe, uh, 20 years ago. But the, imagine, if you will, a famous violinist has a terrible disease, and he is getting ready to die at any second. And right before he dies, he goes and he has a big umbilicus coming out of him, and he plugs himself into you. And suddenly he is getting all of his life and all of his sustenance. Every last breath he is leeching off of you. And you then have this moral problem because this guy's going to follow you to the grocery store. He's going to follow you home. He is plugged. But if you unplug him, he dies. Now, the question is, are you morally responsible to keep him plugged in or are you within your rights as an individual American to unplug him even though the consequence is that he dies? And, of course, typically an American would say, I never entered into a a compact with him to take upon myself the obligation to take care of famous violinists. Therefore, of course, I am in with my, my personal freedom to unplug myself. But what you see in Jesus and what you see in the Hebrew Scriptures is a radically different perspective, where it's not only your responsibility to take care of the famous violinist, even at great personal cost, losing your privacy, losing your well-being, everything, but it's all of our responsibility to take care of the famous violinist and to figure out how to get him plugged into a better system to keep him alive so that we can share this responsibility because as human beings, we are in solidarity with one another. That's something we see at work here, where everybody has to be absolved from the blood guilt of this person who has died because there's a corporate responsibility that we have to take care of one another. But there's something even more here. More than this principle of the holiness of human life, that it is wrong to take human life. Human life has inherent dignity on account of the image of God in man. Something more than the principle of biblical solidarity, that we are all responsible for what happens to one another. There's something else here that is so obvious you can miss it. It's so powerfully present as the very context intellectually of everything that is said here, and yet we miss it every single time. And it's something, I don't know if you see it, it's something bound up in the question that the Israelite community has to be able to answer. Before they're absolved, they have to be able to say, Lord, we did not do this, nor did we see it done. What's the moral principle there? The moral principle means that if you had seen it done, you would be responsible to prevent the crime or, if that's not possible, to minimize the crime by intervening or, if that is not possible, to testify about what it is that you saw. Second point. This means there are times when God calls you to speak up, to break the regime of silence. 
So much evil in the world, so much injustice, so much abuse. I've heard your stories of abuse. It breaks my heart, and yet I keep hearing it. And in every single instance, what allowed the abuse to continue is somebody knew it was happening, and they did not break the regime of silence. They did not speak up. Friends, when there is a victim, what God is saying here is if you know something, you have to speak See, as as human beings, we have an amazing capacity for ignoring things that make us uncomfortable. We ignore symptoms of deteriorating health until something major goes wrong. We ignore emotional wounds, both in ourselves and in those closest to us. But the moral principle directive to us in this passage is the requirement that we speak or act when someone is being mistreated. Had the people known this attack was happening, they should have spoken. They have to be able to say, Lord, we did not do this, nor did our eyes see it done. What does it mean to break the regime, the rule of silence? It means speaking up when you suspect abuse. Uh, It's not enough to say you didn't commit the abuse. Uh, You have to say, I didn't see it done. I didn't know, Lord. Uh, Think of all the damage that's done because of a bishop who failed to call the police, because of a scouting volunteer who assumed a leader was just a little too physical because a family member didn't want to hurt an uncle's reputation. But you saw something. It didn't seem right to you. And if you saw something, you have a moral responsibility, according to the 21st chapter of Deuteronomy, to speak up and do something about that. Often when there's an investigation, more often than not, we discover there was not abuse. But we want a culture of protection in the family of Jesus within the church that airs very, very, very heavily on the side of protection. Um... We have to learn what it looks like to go to authority and say, you know, this is probably not anything, but I just want to make sure somebody looks into it. Um, Let me tell you what I saw. Uh, We have a, for our children's workers, youth workers, um, we have a, a background check system. And it's sort of like the free background check. It just does the quick scan to make sure it doesn't go super, super deep. It just, but if there's red flag, it red flags it. And I remember an awkward situation where uh, we had never before had a red flag. And the children's ministry director came up to me in the hallway and said, um, Greg, there's something I need to talk to you about. Yeah, what's, what's that? Um, well, we, we had a flag on, on one of the background checks. I'm like, oh, okay, well, okay, who was it? The name was Greg Johnson. <laughs> I thought, oh. I, I need to be background checked too. Don't ever get pastors pass. Uh, they have too much authority. And, and it was interesting. We had to do the, the well, we had actually already done it, but we had, we had to do a deeper background check. And it turns out that there are two Greg Johnsons born on October 3rd, 1972. One of them is a pastor in St. Louis and the other is an arsonist in the Bronx. <laughs> and it explains everything about why it was so hard getting back into the country that one time. Um, but, you know, A children's ministry director has to be able to go to her supervisor and confront her supervisor over something and bring in the expensive background check to make sure everything is okay. You know, predators don't feel safe in communities or churches or schools or scout troops that have a culture of protection where things get talked about. They rely on the regime of silence. That's their their, their method of operation, and it's our responsibility to make sure they do not ever have that. Lord, we did not see this act, nor did our eyes see it done. 
Think of all the times we encounter situations in which somebody's silence causes harm. Uh, I asked friends just to, to help brainstorm, and the things that were mentioned were like when you fail to communicate to your loved ones how much you love them, and so they hurt because you don't think that you have to verbalize it. Or when you're watching a fellow customer in a shop uh, unfairly berate a store clerk and you don't say anything about it, and you maybe whisper something to the store clerk afterwards, but realize that clerk is the lowest paid person in the room at that moment and has the least power because they're an employee and they don't want to lose their job by responding to a customer, and you're the only one who can call that other customer out and say, I'm not liking the way you're, you're treating the store clerk. It's risky. When you withhold information under the guise of protecting someone else, when you're actually the one you're protecting, when you weaponize silence by withholding communication to punish someone, what we used to call the silent treatment, today the trendy name is ghosting. When somebody has experienced a loss or they're grieving and you don't know what to say and so you don't say anything at all, the most commonly cited thing that just adds to the pain of those who are grieving is the silence from people who should be acknowledging the loss. Or maybe you think it's too late, it's been too much time. Uh, it'd be too awkward to say something now, I missed my chance, when, when you could actually write the little handwritten note and say, you know, I didn't make a point to acknowledge this before, and I'm sorry, but I am really, really sorry over what you've gone through, and I'm praying for you. Times when we've failed or injured or harmed someone, and we sit in silence instead of offering an apology, or when you're the one who's been injured, but you don't confront the other person because you think it's their job to come to you, and you use that as an excuse to injure them with your silence. When someone in authority has hurt you, uh, whether it's out of their sin or just a lack of maturity or a lack of skills, and, and you fail gently and lovingly to confront or let your pastor or your boss or your, your mom or your dad or whoever it is, you don't let them know what you saw happen or how they hurt somebody, which means that just perpetuates the cycle because I and your boss and your parent and whoever else are never going to learn how to treat people with more dignity and love and sensitivity if somebody's not coming to us and showing us that. In an organization, when the whistleblower is the one that everybody turns on to try to get them to tamp down and, and get back into line and quit rocking the boat, or when you fail to speak up when you witness unfair treatment, when somebody's character is maligned, your silence will be experienced as extreme pain and tacit approval. It's, it's one of the things that we've learned from the black church in America is that injustice that is ignored is injustice that is condoned. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said there is a time when silence itself is betrayal. Times when somebody needs affirmation or just to be acknowledged as having basic human dignity, but no one speaks up with them because they don't want to be associated with the scandal in the room. When you're the victim of a crime and you don't speak up, which means the victimizer continues victimizing other people. When you fail to speak up for a family member who's being shamed or ignored or taken advantage of because you don't want to be thought of as disloyal. When you see the opportunity to talk about the gospel of Christ and you withhold it out of fear or people-pleasing or a desire to be thought well of. Or when you see concerning indicators in a fellow Christian's life and you don't reach out to them, you don't check in, you don't ask them how they're doing because you don't want to make them feel uncomfortable, but you don't understand that you're reaching out and you're asking how they're doing. You're, you're pointing out what they're doing. It may be the very thing that averts a suicide 
or provides the beginning of a road to sobriety for them. Or it may be the turning point in their marriage or their first step away and out of a lifetime of abuse toward freedom. Lord, we did not do this, nor did our eyes see it done. If you see it done, we have a corporate responsibility to say something, to break the regime of silence. It's a holy calling, and yet it also brings risk. I remember a young woman here years ago. She had started grad school. We'll call her Evelyn. I remember Evelyn realizing the physical and emotional abuse with which she had grown up. And at this point, she was in grad school, and she was able to process that experience with all sorts of other people. And as she processed it, she thought through, you know, all of the dangerous quack medical experiments her parents did on her, the manipulation, the beatings. And she realized that it's not okay, and yet she also looked back home and saw her little brother, still a minor, still at home, undergoing the very same kinds of physical and emotional abuse. And I can remember Evelyn staring at her phone, preparing to make the phone call, calling up her parents. She talked about it before. She confronted them before, but it got to the point where she sat down. She called her parents. Hi, Dad. Is Mom there? You sit down. Uh, can, can I have you guys go on speakerphone so, I can, so you can both hear what I have to say? I have something to tell you, and, and we're not going to discuss it. I'm informing you, and then I'm going to hang up. And I will not be taking phone calls or messages from you for the next 48 hours, and I will not be reading your emails, and if you drive up here and try and find me, I will be staying with friends. You will not find me. I've already documented for you a pattern of emotional and physical abuse that I see you engaging in against my brother. And I am going to hotline you to the the Division of Family Services in 48 hours. I am giving you the opportunity to hotline yourselves first. I've already sent you the number. I love you guys. Goodbye now. And she hung up. Can you imagine confronting your parents? But she had no choice. Her eyes had seen the love of Christ inside of her compelled her to risk completely losing forever her relationship with her family. But Lord, we did not do this thing, but my eyes have seen it done. Breaking that regime, it's real risk. I remember uh, reading and studying this passage more than 15 years ago with a group of Christians from a, a very, very impoverished part of North St. Louis City. And they lived in a neighborhood that had a lot of crime and a lot of drugs and a lot of violence and not very many dads. And when they read and discussed this passage, I remember a look of surprise on some of their faces. It was like an aha moment. You, could, you see, they had... They saw implications in Deuteronomy 21 that I, with my own background and experience, had never before been able to see. One of them just looked at me and she said, Oh my goodness. Jesus is telling me he wants me to become a snitch in my neighborhood. Oh Lord Jesus, help me follow through with what you command me here. You see, as a woman of color who remembered Jim Crow and who remembered the civil rights movement and had a very long memory and had seen a lot of things. She had so many thoughts going through her head at that moment. Lord Jesus, do you want me to pick up the phone and call the police on those boys selling crack and heroin on my corner? Or that man who shot up the house over on Goodfellow? Am I supposed to go out there as the Christian lady on my block and and warn them that I'm going to talk if they keep it up? Uh, She said, it sounds like God is telling me you need to pick up your phone and say, I did not do this, officer, but I have seen it done. 
Do you have any idea how risky that could be or could have felt in her part of town? Gangs don't appreciate snitches. The reigning narrative is snitches get stitches. You can lose your life for calling the police on somebody. Snitching can get your house shot up. Shot up when your grandbabies are sleeping by the window, and gangs aren't aren't the only part that may feel risky in a community where the relationship with law enforcement at that point was very strained, and where there was a distrust that went back over a century. Picking up the phone and inviting the police into your house can be a very risky thing. You 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 may worry that the person you're ratting out won't be treated fairly. Or you may worry that when the officers leave your house, everybody on the block is going to know who the snitch is. But Lord, we did not do this act, but our eyes have seen it done. Where I've seen it done, I will not submit to the regime of silence. Last question. How can we take a risk like this? Some things to notice here. First, you have a God. Verse 1 speaks of the land that the Lord, Yahweh, his personal name, which he gives us. Yahweh, your God, is giving you to possess. That's a, that's a possessive. Understand there's a covenantal relationship being described here. Moses describes us to, as, uh, uh, to God as, as your people Israel, meaning we're the people that belong to God, but that possessiveness goes both ways. Uh, in this passage, we are described as his people, but he is described as our God. He owns us, but we own him as well as our deity that we worship to which we owe loyalty. It's a covenant union. It's a, it's a contract, but it's more than a contract. The covenant is a, a relationship, but it's more than a relationship. And in the New Testament, we dis- see it described as, as being the body of Christ of which Christ is head. This language of union with Christ being in Christ, in the Lord, in the beloved, united to Christ, uh, being one with Christ. It appears over over 160 times just in Paul's letters alone. Paul writes to the Colossians, you died and your lives are now hidden with Christ in God. That is a covenantal union, you in him and him in you, knit together inseparably as the people of God with Christ our head. You can risk breaking the silence. Because you're not on your own anymore. You have a God and he has you and you are safe and secure in his hands. He has a covenant with you. He has your back. He, has, he, he knows you. But it's better than that, friends. Because of that covenant relationship, God himself takes responsibility for our own weaknesses and for our failings. You see, in ancient Israel, what that looked like in this passage is they had to take a perfect animal one that had never been used, a heifer that has never been worked, and lead her down in verse 3 and 4 to a valley that has not been plowed or planted and where there's a flowing stream. That means a year-round stream. And there you break the heifer's neck. You see, this, this passage is about how to return to that place of innocence. They go from their blood-stained town and their blood-stained fields that have been marred by sin and abuse and corruption and silence and all the sin and shame that we live with every day, and they're instead going to a place where the land is virgin. The stream is flowing year-round. The land has never been cut or touched by our sinful hands. And they're returning to that place of innocence. They provide atonement in order to return their own city, their own land, their own villages to a place of innocence. And even though the townspeople 
you know, on one level, they're individually innocent of this, yet collectively, the text speaks of the blood guilt for the blood of an innocent man from which they must, must be cleansed. And, and so what we have here is a little different with this sacrifice, a little different than the, from the guilt offerings at the tabernacle. This is not an atonement for one person's specific sin. That would involve shedding of blood uh, in the tabernacle as a sin offering. What we have here is an atonement for the general sin that all of us have because we're in solidarity with one another. It's, it isn't just a symbolic reenactment of the murder, in other words. The text specifies this is an atonement. That's the term that's used. Even though the animal's neck is broken instead of its blood being spilled. And yet somehow, before God, we collectively failed this murdered man even if it was in ignorance. And so God gives instruction for the Israelites on how to get back in a right relationship with God, how to return to that place of innocence. And for that to happen, there had to be a substitution and there had to be a debt paid. There had to be a death for Israel to be forgiven, to regain its innocence. Another had to die in her place. And so the priests, the sons of Levi, shall step forward, verse 5, And they say in verse 8 and 9, Accept this atonement for your people, Israel, for whom whom you have redeemed, O Lord. And do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent man. And the bloodshed will be atoned for, and so you will purge from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood. This was the path back to innocence, that one would die for our collective guilt as a substitute, as an atonement, in order to make peace and return us to a state of innocence pleasing to God. This whole ceremonial system, looking at that ceremonial aspect of the law, that whole ceremonial system, it was the training wheels training us again and again that one would come who would truly take our guilt, who would truly lead us back to a place of innocence by all of these sacrifices in the temple, in the tabernacle, in fields where where, 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 we're... to atone for for unsolved murders, all of these sacrifices, training God's people for a thousand years that God himself would bring a substitute and your guilt would be transferred from you to the substitute. He would bear it. He would die. His blood would be shed. His bones would be broken. And God would be pleased. 1 John chapter 4. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. For this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You want to find Christ in this passage, friends. The Lord Jesus Christ is the heifer who is innocent, who is untouched, who is spotless, who is never born a calf. The virgin sacrifice sent in order order to bring us to a place of innocence, our guilt atoned for on account of what he has done. The Lord Jesus, in solidarity with us, taking our debt through his incarnation, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. How can you risk breaking the regime of silence when you've been so loved that another died To purge you from the guilt of sin. When another has given up his life to die in your place, friends, it begins to shape you. You start to hold on to your life a little less tightly. You you begin to risk a little more insecurity. You start to take risks on behalf of others. You start to live as one who has been redeemed. You start to live loved. And when you know that Jesus loves you so much 
that he was led out of the city, when you know that he cares for you enough to carry the guilt of your sin, when you know he was so committed to you and so unwilling to lose you that he died in your place willingly and gladly as an atonement to reconcile you to God. Friends, when that, when that grabs your heart, it changes you. The one who risked everything to speak in your defense, Jesus then frees you to go and do likewise, to put an end to the regime of silence and replace it with the reign of his grace. The late Brennan Manning is perhaps best known for the ragamuffin gospel. But Brennan Manning was not his native-born name. He was born Richard Francis Xavier Manning. He was Baptist. Just kidding. Richard Francis Xavier Manning. While growing up, he, his best friend was a guy named, named Ray, and the two of them did everything together. They were best buds from, from, from childhood all the way up through elementary school, middle school, high school. They were joined at the hip. Anytime you saw one of them, you saw the other one. When they became teenagers, they actually bought a car together. They each owned half of it. Uh, they double dated together, the two of them across the table from the two girls they were dating. When they went to school together, uh, they, 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 they took all the same classes together. They ultimately enlisted in the Marine Corps together. They went to boot camp together, and they fought on the front lines together in Korea. And one night while sitting in a foxhole, Manning was reminiscing about the old days in Brooklyn. They were reminiscing about girlfriends and the car that they missed that was still sitting on the street uh, collecting dust. They were reminiscing about good times, elementary school, middle school, telling stories, joking, laughing, having a great time. Uh, Ray was sitting there eating a chocolate bar, listening as Manning was reminiscing about, about, about the old times when a live grenade dropped into the foxhole right next to them. Ray looked at Manning. He smiled his biggest, toothiest grin, dropped his chocolate bar, and threw himself on the live grenade right as it exploded. And it killed Ray, blew his body to bits, and yet he saved his friend Manning's life. It was years later when Manning became a priest that he was instructed to take on the name of a saint. And he thought of his friend, Ray Brennan. And so he took the name Brennan because no one else had shaped him more than his very best friend, the friend who loved him, the friend who willingly died in order that he could live. Friends, that friend is Jesus. When your best friend Jesus saw the grenade fall in front of you, He knew that that grenade was going to do a lot more damage than anything a human enemy could throw at you. That grenade that Christ jumped on was the righteous justice of God against all the ways that I have failed to speak up on behalf of the world's victims. And seeing that impending destruction, he looked at you and he smiled his toothiest grin at you. He dropped his chocolate bar. He set aside glory itself. And for the joy set before him, Christ Jesus threw himself on that grenade as it exploded and he took the full brunt of the blast so that for you, if you are in Christ and Christ is your friend, then there is no more wrath of God for you. There is no more explosion. There is no more grenade. Your judgment day has moved from the future to the past and you will stand before God in judgment no more. You will stand as one who is worthy and righteous and washed and loved because Jesus died for you because Jesus loved you. That bloodshed 
All our bloodshed, all of our cowardice, all of our fear and neglect has now been atoned for. You have purged from you the guilt of your sin. Jesus, our substitute, our atonement, our best friend Jesus, who alone can break the regime of silence and replace it with the reign of his grace.